This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. about uh, some of the big banks today, understandably so. Shares of J.P. Morgan Chase, they're higher following earnings. You also had uh, Wells Fargo out as well. Their earnings taking uh, another big uh, litigation hit. So let's break it down. Let's start with J.P. Morgan. Here to go over the quarter, Arnold Kakuda, banking and credit analyst at our in-house research group. They're known as Bloomberg Intelligence. He's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. On the phone in New York City, Ken Leon, equity analyst at CFRA Research. Arnold, I do want to start with you. Let's go to J.P. Morgan. The quarter, the stock's up about a percent. Uh, how would you sum up the quarter? What are the key points? Yeah, no, it's, um, I guess, you know, it's all about the taxes and, uh, you know, how it kind of muddied the quarter. I guess, you know, it's, it's raining in New York today, and I guess, you know, the tax impacts are similar. You know, it kind of dampens uh, everything. It, you're, you're all walking. It's kind of muddy. You're trying to get through it. It's annoying. But what it does is it clears the slate for next year. So, um, you know, so taxes had like a $2.5 billion impact. Um, but, you know, next year, you know, profits should be higher because of the lower tax rate. But Are we fun- just hearing about taxes a lot because we had the overhaul? Correct. Yep. And then, but, okay. you know, looking at the fundamentals, though, it's, it's kind of the continuation of what we've seen from the prior quarter. So, you know, um, you know, consumer, like kind of the boring banking stuff, consumer, you know, banking, as well as, you know, uh, lending to, to commercial clients, you know, that's been going pretty well. Asset management, you know, on fire. Um, but, you know, the, the real kind of the, the weak spot, you know, again, was in the trading area. So fixed income down 30%, which is, uh, you know, a, bit, a little bit worse than kind of what analysts expected. And, and that, that, you know, that low volatility environment, you know, looks to continue. Ken Leon, what's up with the big loss at J.P. Morgan in the, in the trading? Uh, uh, what do we? Did, well, tell me what. It, tell me for our listeners who don't know the story. Tell tell us the story, and then give me your speculation. What might have happened? So, since the financial crisis, it's always been the debate of is this weaker secular or cyclical, and I think analysts are getting more comfortable that it's something that structurally could be more permanent. We got low volatility, tighter credit spreads. Uh, depending on the makeup of the trading products and fixed income, currency and commodities, or their customer base. But 34% down for J.P. Morgan was a disappointment. Um, hopefully... But there was one bad deal in there, right? Or one, deal had to be mar- one deal that had to be marked to market that, that was of, of, uh, looked like it was just they backed one trader's uh, thus far really bad loss. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's part of it. But I, I think, um, the willingness to to put risk capital on the desk for derivatives um, is there's not that kind of appetite for the major banks, and the uh, tax reform act really doesn't help further on that, especially on cross border derivatives. So, where should, in your view? Um, can J.P. Morgan be spending the big windfall that they're going to have by uh, a lower tax rate? So the overall businesses did well in the fourth quarter, um, and that's going to give runway for 2018. Uh, They're going to be investing globally where there's opportunities for profitable market share gains, an area that didn't get a lot of attention 
on the calls, but it's a big rebound from 18 months ago is Europe. And the U.S. banks are much stronger like J.P. Morgan today versus the European banks that have retrenched investment banking and trading. Arnold, come on in on uh, the conversation again. Um, J.P. Morgan, uh, they also had a conference call, and there were a lot of questions that that was peppered. What in particular did analysts want to know about? Well, yeah, it, it, you know, I, th- I think is you know just really about the taxes and you know when when you know it, if you look at it, the, you know this year's um, prof, um, earnings and, and if you kind of backed in the tax the new tax rate, you'd have an extra three and a half billion. So would that really fall straight to the bottom line, or, or you know is that going to be competed away? You know, people wanted to get get a gauge on you know what would happen there. But, um, you know, it, it was kind of like maybe in the first year you might have that a lot of that falling to the bottom line. But over time, you know, that's going to get competed away either to, you know, you have to give your lower level employees raises. Um, you might have to do more for the community to make, uh, you know, the president happy, as well as, you know, kind of maybe the, the, you know, loan pricing and stuff. You can get a little bit more aggressive. There's there, a fun so. story on the Bloomberg. I'm going to put it out on Twitter at Carol Masser at Corey TV. And it just says the fight begins at J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo over the surprise tax bonanza. And it's just exactly what you just said. Is, does it go to employees? Employees? Does it go to buybacks and dividends? Does it go to better deals, um, you know, better pricing when it comes to uh, borrowers and loans? Or does it get invested in communities, Corey? There's a lot of stuff. Yeah, um, and and I guess it's a question. I wonder, uh, Ken, what you, what you expect them to do in terms of, you know, what we know from the last tax repatriation holiday is money goes right into buybacks and dividends and not into paying employees. Well, that's right, and that's where I'm going because, uh, you know, the the large banks are going to be following with the Federal Reserve their 2018 capital plans for the stress tests, and it's better, as Jamie Dimon said, to hold on to these windfall earnings into capital, Um, and I would say at least half or more will be a windfall on dividend growth and buybacks. Those would be announced by the banks once the Fed approves these plans in June, that would be in the August-September period. That's where I would be looking as an investor. Wells Fargo. We really haven't talked too much about Wells Fargo. Um, Arnold, what do we need to know about that? Uh, that stock's down about 1%. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really just the continuation of, you know, wh- when can we get over this account, account scandal thing? And, uh, I mean, this was the perfect quarter to do so in terms of... Just throw it in. Uh, yeah, well, because uh, unlike uh, other banks, um, Wells Fargo is unique in that it has a deferred tax liability. So uh, other, tanks, uh, other banks have a deferred tax asset because they had big losses during the financial crisis. Wells Fargo is profitable. So when you, when you adjust that for the tax, uh, new, new tax rate, they actually recognized a gain of $3.5 billion. So you look at the kind of litigation accrual that they did, Ah, magically, three and a half billion. Mm-hmm. So you know that that lit, you know litigation accrual. Most of that is for kind of the legacy mortgage-related uh, things. But then also, you know, they also threw in some stuff for kind of the continued kind of um, you know sales practice issues. So this is a great quarter to kind of take that expense. All right, interesting. Just the beginning to a big banks. We'll get more next week, including Goldman Sachs and a few others. Uh, Arnold Kakuda, he is our banking and credit analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts in our New York studio, and Ken Leon. Our thanks to you as well, equity analyst. At CFRA Research on the phone in New York. Your eyes explain a story that never had a start. Your bow reveals the floor of the tree. Our big change is afoot at Facebook. A, comment, uh, a post by Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO and founder of the company, uh, suggesting big changes in the Facebook feed that could have implications across the world of advertising and certainly at Facebook itself. Joining us to discuss this right now is Scott Devitt, Internet Media Analyst at Stiefel and Jatender Wall. 
Bloomberg Intelligence Global Internet Analyst, back from a global adventure of his own. Uh, Jay, glad to have you back. But let me start with Scott. Scott, what did Mark Zuckerberg say? Well, the, you know, the, the company is, is going to be, I think, going back to its roots and focusing on connecting users to friends and family, um, which is what the service was originally intended to do, and, and removing a focus on amplification and um, and integration into the newsfeed of, of, of media content, uh, videos, and other more commercial content. The, the effects of this, you know, likely could mean lower levels of engagement for a period of time and potentially uh, lower levels of monetization. And that's why I think you've seen the, the response in the stock the way you have. Right. And we should point that out, that the stock is down more than 8 bucks, $179, about $0.38 cents a share here. Um, Jachendra, come on in on this, because I've been looking at two investor commentary on Facebook's news, and some of them are saying, you know, I expect the time that people spend on Facebook and some measures of engagement will go down. Is this potentially a big hit to Facebook's model and how it all works? Actually, uh, what they're trying to do is solve this long-term problem of, like, last couple of years, you've seen the total time spent on the network come down. And that's happening in part due to, you know, more content coming from businesses and news stories and also more Instagram usage. So the steps that they're taking should actually help them in the long term. But in the near term, there might be a sales impact. Well, and and that impact on sales at Facebook, I mean, is Facebook's not deriving revenue from these media placements, are they? No, but it's it's more about engagement, ad inventory, and things like that. So the offsets over here is Instagram, whose revenues are expected to about double uh, this year. They have more lever- leverage over there. Ad pricing that's been going up uh, and, and more push towards video. So more quality time could lead to more ad pricing and uh, the ad inventory that might shrink, which uh, may slightly impact revenues. But I think the bigger problem is for the ecosystem than it is for Facebook. Scott, talk to us a little bit about your call today on Facebook. Uh, You've got a hold rating on the name. Yeah, we did. We downgraded to hold today on on the back of this news, but you know, been, been focused on this uh, actually in, in in front of Mr. Zuckerberg's post as well. And that look, look, this is the first crisis this company has faced in the public markets since the mobile monetization transition in two thousand. I mean, what about the crisis about privacy or the crisis about uh, the fake news itself and testifying before Congress? And you know, I, mean, I feel like these companies actually been up against it a few times. Corey, it's it's all it's all. It's all one and the same. They're all connected. And I think yeah. fake news, Congress, and this, it's, it's all culminated in this moment where the company's finally been forced to acknowledge that there's a problem. And so, you know, if there weren't a problem, none of this would be going on. And, and the question I think that some, some investors should ask is, is this all being organically generated that the company is coming in and fixing the business? Or is it because these external entities have come at them, you know, that they've been forced to do it? And so when I, when I talk about a crisis, I, I'm speaking to those events collectively relative to when the company went through that mobile monetization transition back in 2012. Right. And you've got... Right, folks, representatives of Facebook, I think Google um, and Twitter uh, going before Congress again. Is it next week to talk about terrorism, right? So they continue to be in the spotlight, um, Scott, about their role in all of this. That's right. And, you know, these are not all self-inflicted wounds. But uh, but I, I think that, you know, one could make the case that as the company did begin to grow up in the public markets, 
it started to focus more on ad products and ad monetization, as you do when you shift, you know, as a for-profit from missionary to mercenary over time. And with that, lost some focus on product. And I think at the core of what's happening here is a doubling back down on product, which has been said is likely good for the franchise long term. It sustains the terminal value of the company, but it can certainly be problematic when investors look at um, the short-term earnings impact. And we won't really have any assessment of that until the company speaks again on its earning call on January 31st. Uh, Jitender, uh, your take on, on this sort of focus on product? I mean, I've seen other analysts out there say this is actually be good for Facebook to have better user engagement going forward. Yeah, I think long term uh, it should be, and um, you know, some of the other properties also give them some leverage. You know, you have WhatsApp Messenger; it's still not yet figured out how to monetize that, but they can pull some of these levers, uh, hopefully. But Instagram is still sort of underestimated in terms of how much it can expand uh, quickly, given the engagement there. What's your expectation for Instagram, say three years out? It should be significantly bigger than what it is right now. Yeah. In fact, you know, one interesting thing that's happening with these new phones that are coming out, the camera quality has improved so much. Uh, it's like it's making everybody a photographer and post more on Instagram and things like that. So uh, continued tailwind for them. Scott, what's the one question you'd be asking Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook right now? We've got about 30 seconds left here. I think that um, that ultimately it, it would it will be important for investors to understand you know exactly the changes that are going to be made and, and what that's going to lead to in terms of improvement over time and the experience that consumers have or as he says making them happy and then and then secondly you know truly what the what the I know you said one but truly what the longer term you know implications are on on the business model from an economic standpoint which we we may likely more hear from from a financial officer than Mr. Zuckerberg himself but I think but I think those are the two topics that are of critical importance at the moment all right we're going to leave it on that note gentlemen thank you so much scott Devitt, uh, lead internet and media analyst at Stiefel Financial on the phone in New York City. Jachandra Worrell, global internet and consumer electronics analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence. This is Bloomberg Radio. Everyone loves blockchain right now. That's a chain that seems unbreakable. Ed Sims, the founder of Bold Start Ventures. And it's got to look with us at what's going on in the world of blockchain. Certainly lots of excitement, Ed, as we see companies talk about partnerships with uh, with companies that are doing blockchain things or Bitcoin-like things and or redubbing themselves blockchain companies and the stocks accelerate. But, uh, you know, we had the case this week of Kodak, a, a serious 129-year-old company uh, involved in technology from day one that sees blockchain. I talked to the CEO on the phone yesterday. We tried to get on the show before the power went out at CES, and he said – this is a serious technology. It solves a problem for us, and we're going to put this to use within the next 90 days. It's pretty incredible. Uh, I put a tweet out yesterday on, on Ad Ed Sim, and it said the rule for 2018 from a venture perspective and even now a public company perspective is what can be blockchained will be blockchained. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's all a good thing. I do believe that fundamentally in the next five to 10 years, it's, it's almost like a new internet, like a distributed internet. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of garbage and noise out there. So companies like Kodak, you know, taking the example from Long Island Ice-T, I think it's definitely exciting. But I still have a lot of questions, and I'm quite skeptical about it. You know, how is a company that has no software experience 
you know, building on the blockchain and launching out this new ICO. So, you know, I think it's going to be very important for investors, whether you're public investors or even venture capital investors, to try to find the signal from the noise and all of this uh, excitement. Are things, though, moving a little fast when it comes to valuations of digital currencies uh, and futures when it comes uh, to digital, digital currencies and, and so on? Do you feel like it's moving a little too fast without us really as investors understanding it completely? I think that's a great question, and uh, it's, it's a parallel, to, in my own mind, to the 90s. I've been at D.C. for over 20 years, and do you remember just kind of the insanity of all the ideas yes. back in the day? Yes, I do. And the only – yeah, the big difference, though, is that, you know, you own stock or equity, and, and it could be worth something or nothing. And if you think about Amazon as an example, Amazon was a darling and then was garbage, and then now look at Amazon today. I feel the same way about cryptocurrencies today is that there's a lot of people that's going to make money for the next kind of, you know, 18 months kind of day trading and jumping in and out. It's almost like that whole e-trade, day trading phenomenon. You've got all these younger folks who never invested in stocks that are all of a sudden excited. I have a high schooler that I know that started a hedge fund, a 250K hedge fund for crypto. It's insane right now. So, yes, the answer is it's crazy. But I like to separate it out because we're enterprise investors the underlying technology of the blockchain, I think, is transformative. And that's why we partnered with IBM and Comcast Ventures to create our own kind of accelerator around enterprise blockchain adoption separate from cryptocurrency. So we brought in a seasoned operator named Rob Bailey, who you know ran a company called DataSift and was CEO of one of our company's customers. And we're helping entrepreneurs who have phenomenal ideas understand and how to engage with the Fortune 500. And fundamentally, five years from now, we want to make sure that these are the underlying new businesses, the underlying new infrastructure business for the future. Ed, how do you see the practical uses of something like blockchain kind of playing out potentially? Yeah, I'll give you some great examples. So if you look at kind of what IBM has been doing with, you know, Hyperledger Fabric, which is their open source blockchain, um, they, they announced kind of a food tracking initiative from source of food all the way to shelf. And I think they partnered with Kroger and maybe Nestle, Walmart, and some others. So I think it's an amazing opportunity for a supply chain to track and trace kind of um, uh, goods from uh, creation all the way down to authentic- authenticity to where it's located. That's an example. The other example could be back office kind of payment systems. Look at, look at Ripple, for example. Ripple allows you to kind of transfer currencies cross-border on the back end without actually holding fiat. So it speeds up the whole process into seconds uh, instead of days. So there's tremendous uh, amount of opportunity kind of if you, if you dig in correctly. And right now, the problem is, is that the crypto perspective, the financial perspective, has o- way overtaken kind of what's needed to understand what's driving the, you know, these, these cryptos with the technology itself. It's, it's, it seems to me that, that uh, a lot of the um, discussion is about sort of ICOs and and, and uh, cryptocurrencies that will be good for one singular purpose, right? So Kodak will have a cryptocurrency that's good for monitoring uh, photos. Now, the, and I should say the CEO imagines other uh, uses for this as well, but monitoring the, the uh, replication of and usage of and the payment for photos, that uh, there are lots of other ICOs that are sort of vertically focused in individual industries. And it seems to me that that there's a counter-argument for um, a one or two really big, uh, widely used currencies that can so you can take the money you make in a photo and spend it to get a pizza. 
Yeah. So, so I think those are all great points. I mean, Kodak's not the only one tracking and tracing kind of ownership of photos. I mean, no. there, there are other companies out there right now. There's like three or four. And then what happens if like a Shutterstock decides to, to, to kind of do something on the blockchain? So just because you're on the blockchain doesn't mean Kodak should be up 300%. They have a lot of work to do. And in fact, if you look at a lot of the ICOs, most of them have no product. It's just an 18-page white paper talking about what the token provides you, talking about what the incentives are. I think it's very important for investors to understand the first thing is, who is the founding team? Are they absolutely incredible? Uh, are they ab absolutely credible? Um, is it an idea or is, it, or is there a product? Um, are there any customers? And what are the token incentives? Are they doing this just because they want to make money? Or are they doing it because it makes fundamental sense for the business and you as the end user get to participate? So I think a lot of these actually don't answer all of those questions, which is why I think there'll be a lot of kind of people losing money as well. Ed Sims, founder of Bold Start Ventures, based right here in New York City. You listen to Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Corey Johnson at Corey TV. She's at Carol Masser on Twitter. Carol Masser in real life. And this <laughs> is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is indeed. Corey Johnson, Carol Master here, thinking about what's going on with the markets here in the final moments of trading of the week. Uh, Chris Cordero joins us right now, CIO at Region Atlantic. They're running about $3.5 billion out of Morristown, New Jersey. And, uh, Chris, I wonder for you, as you look forward here, we've got uh, uh, our first full week of trading uh, uh, almost under our belts here, and, and it looks like much of the same. Yeah, and, and that's what uh, that's what I'd see for for the year. And you know, I I know I know I can't predict what the price of the market's going to do, but where I've got a stronger prediction is on earnings. And last year we saw double digit growth in earnings, and I think this year we'll probably see double digit growth in earnings again. And I think that that will really um, give the uh, prices enough fuel to keep up and keep going like we've seen them. And Chris, according to your research, you say we all should be sending a thank you note. Those of us in equity uh, investments, bullish on equity investments, we should all send a thank you note to the president and uh, Congress for tax overhaul. Yes, you know the the, uh, the new tax law making us more com more competitive on the top rate is just is just th that tax savings just flows right through to corporate earnings, uh, and that's a and that's a really positive thing for the markets, and that's why I think in, in part why we've seen uh, you know continue to strength out of the market. Two part question. I'll start with the first part. Mm -hmm. uh, if how do you expect the companies to spend this money? And what investments are you changing with whatever your expectation is? So I, the what what I hope for them to do is I I don't I would rather them take 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 this take this savings and just pass it out to shareholders um, pass it out to shareholders the best possible way is by stock buybacks because it's the most tax efficient um, but also nice dividend yields are are uh, are encouraged too what I what I fear is that corporations with too much money on their books they end up usually doing something stupid with it. And uh, so I'd hate for it to be just spent in, in wasteful acquisitions or really bad uh, cough, corporate cough, moves. Cough, cough, GE, so, cough, cough. 
<laughs> exactly. And and HP before them. You know, it's, it's, uh, the the um, standard setter. <laughs> yeah. And, autonomy, I mean, anyone? We, we kept, Ten billion for watching, autonomy? We just kept watching HP until they would run out of money, so they stopped doing silly things. Um, and, and that's and, and so I, I you know, corporations corporations that pay healthy dividends and and pass this money out and don't leave money sitting on their books. I, I think they run a better fiscal ship. So I'd rather see them pass this out to shareholders. Well, there's nothing like I, that. There's I, nothing like that. I like buybacks too, Chris, to kind of keep the momentum. Right? You're just reducing the outstanding shares. You know that would certainly provide even more support to the market. And for those, you know, executives whose compensation is tied to uh, earnings per share or, you know, taking a look at what the stock does, I mean, that's a good thing for them, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I was if I was if I was running a large corporation and I had a bunch of options, I'd certainly want the share price higher before I pushed out more dividends, and I'd be doing buybacks. The buybacks are also good for the individual investor. You know, our, most of our clients live in New Jersey. This tax law was not friendly for New Jersey folks. So I like to see share buybacks, which are much more tax efficient than cash dividends and special one-time dividends. That's interesting. So, so the notion yeah. is the 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 individual. So the corporate tax break. Well, uh, which some have said is on the backs of the individual taxpayer, as a result might have led to one-time special dividends. But your suggestion is that's actually because of the way this one's being financed, which is through, of course, an extra trillion dollars in debt, according to the Congressional Budget Office, and uh, um, taxes on, on, on individuals in high-tax areas on the coast. You might not see as many special dividends, you think. Yeah, well, I'm. Uh, I would rather it be in share buybacks, and I hope that I hope that corporations get that. Because uh, listening to my clients, this this tax law is stinging them because the wealthier clients on the coast um, are bearing the brunt of the, um, you know, of the. Yes, I am. Tax. Thank you. Rub it in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, hey, require, I guess. I do want to ask yeah. you, Chris. Go back twelve months because I think no one anticipated that 2017 was going to be as bullish as it was for the equity markets. It's pretty remarkable. What did we miss? What can we learn, you know, from a year ago uh, and kind of maybe apply it to this year? Well, yeah, I think the the what was there was it was earnings that were that really drove the market. Um, the the you know the 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 election and the and the and the new president that that was a that was a catalyst or or maybe that was just a um, an unknown to get out of the way. But once the election was over, it cer- it certainly was was earnings that kept things going um, because we really didn't see anything substantially change until the very end of the year when we got. It's tax law. So, um, is, is it is, however, a one-time change. This tax law. Do you expect the gains to, you know, peter out uh, sort of a year from now? Yeah, it's at some you know at some point this all gets this all gets priced in. So I I think we'll see strong earnings in eighteen, and uh, and then I would be concerned about where where do we go after that because you you have to know that prices are are you know the valuations are are, are pretty high, and so in, in our portfolios we're we're looking to buy stocks that have that have some real earnings behind them because when you get a pullback right. and the floor drops out below you. It's profits that hold you up. If right. you've got profits, you've at least got something to lean back on. And Pfizer, Royal Dutch Shell, and Chubb among those that uh, kind of reflect your views there at uh, Regent Atlantic. Chris Cordero, he's the chief investment officer at Regent. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Move it on. 
out. He's called Movers and Shakers. It costs a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for your Movers and Shakers, winners and losers on this Friday afternoon. I'm Carol Masser along with Corey Johnson. S&P 500, let's start there. 356 names in the S&P 500. Higher today, 146 lower, three unchanged. The number one decliner in the S&P 500 is Aflac, and that stock down more than 7%, 7 7.4%, $6.60. 75 cents a share, closing at $84.94 a share, uh, plummeting after the company was alleged to have, quote, exploited workers, manipulated its accounting, and deceiving shareholders and customers. Investigative uh, news site The Intercept first broke the news, interviewing nine former employees who have sued the company over the claims. Aflac, meantime, also coming out, releasing a statement calling the allegations false. The insurer said it had investigated the claims and, quote, found them to be without merit. It intends to file for a dismissal of that lawsuit. But again, Aflac shares the number one decliner in the S&P 500, as I mentioned, down more than 7 percent. The stock now down more than 3 percent in 2018. We mentioned earlier Facebook down 5% today or 4.4.5% if you want to be exact about things after, the, after Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO of the company, uh, writing in a blog post that he wants to change the way the, the, the story feed in Facebook, the primary product of Facebook works and have it less focused on things from the media and more focused on things from your friends and family and Facebook friends in specifically. Uh, and the concern that that's going to have an impact on Facebook's revenues and that uh, people's experience of Facebook now is going to change dramatically. That concern, sending shares of Facebook down quite a bit, 5% uh, for Facebook. And uh, um, I think you know it, we've been talking about it a little bit on the show today, and I think uh, one of the things that it's – maybe overestimates or underestimates it overestimates the importance of Facebook within Facebook and underestimates the importance of things like uh, Instagram where a lot of the revenue growth has come from in the last year and that Instagram itself might continue to grow. Uh, there are estimates out that say three years from now Instagram will be doing $11 billion in annual revenues uh, and of course that accrues right to Facebook's uh, top and bottom line. And nonetheless, the growth rate for Facebook's uh, revenues um, has slowed a little bit this year. Uh, mm-hmm. A year ago, you know, it was trading at about uh, averaging about a 54% of revenue increase uh, year over year, only 46% this year. Concerns that that could decline substantially uh, weighing on the stock today. Um, though I should say over the last uh, uh, 12 months, the stock is up 42% even after today's sell-off. All right, Viacom, shares of Viacom, the number one gainer in the S&P 500 today, up 9.6%. Viacom, CBS uh, Vice Chair Sherry Redstone, of course, uh, daughter of Sumner Redstone, the founder, uh, pursuing merger of the two companies. The RAP reported this, citing unidentified people with knowledge of the matter. Time frame unclear, three individuals with knowledge, saying Redstone, quote, actively moving in that direction. CBS Chair Les Moonves is said to be open to the possibility Viacom declined to comment to the wrap. Uh, CBS and National Amusements had no comment as well, but still enough to give uh, investors maybe some... uh, you know, bullish, more of a bullish feel, if you will, on a possible combination, certainly on shares of Viacom. Again, they were up about 9.5%. And just if I can throw out Lowe's as well, because that was the number two decliner, up more than 5%. And the stock was kind of mellow all day, Corey. Then a little bit after 2.30, headline crossed that uh, 
talked about D.E. Shaw, investor D.E. Shaw, has built an active stake in Lowe's, according to people familiar with the matter. Uh, their specific plans um, for the investment can immediately be learned, but nonetheless showing some interest by that investor and uh, got all investors more interested in shares of Lowe's. Number Just really quick, the uh, a, a little company based in Massachusetts called Atlantic Power saw its shares up 4% today. It's got about a billion three market cap, but it's a, it's a uh, power generation company. They've got some uh, uh, non-utility electric generating facilities that operate primarily in the United States. One of their shareholders uh, made an activist-like but strange uh, suggestion that they use their excess capacity for power to mine Bitcoin. And that uh, this activist investor thinks that they will gain uh, that their excess power actually could be more useful than just uh, burning it off or not using it. That they should use their power generation facility to make some Bitcoin, and that had the stock up four uh, percent. Interesting that uh, since it's 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 a power company, it's principally uh, a, a debt uh, right. instrument with about ninety billion in debt, so it's a one point three billion dollar. Uh, enterprise value, just a $270 million uh, market cap uh, with the stock. And uh, the stock, over up today on that news that it could become a Bitcoin miner, or at least one of its investors wants it to be. Looks like Apple II closing um, with a $900 billion market cap for the first time ever. Let's quickly get to the VIX. VIX on this Friday up 2.6%, closing at 1014 for the week. The VIX is up 10%. This is Bloomberg Radio. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Dave Wilson joins us right now with his stock of the day. And that would be AAR, a company, if you go back to the 1950s, was Allen Aircraft Radio. The aircraft part of that name still fits. They provide aviation services to commercial and military customers. It fits so well, it's actually their stock ticker, the first three letters anyway, AIR, A-I-R. AAR shares have had four major swings in the past four decades. They peaked in 1989, 1998, 2007, and again last month when they rose to a record. AAR then slipped as fiscal second quarter earnings were disappointing, and CEO David Storch, who's run the company since 1996, said he would retire May 31st. Today brought a rebound thanks to Credit Suisse. Analyst Robert Springarn raised his AAR rating for the first time since he began covering the company almost three years ago. He's now at the equivalent of buy rather than neutral. And he also increased a 12-month share price estimate by 29% to $49. AAR closed at $41.73 today after rising 7.3%, the stock's biggest gain in 16 months. Very cool story. Dave Wilson with his stock of the day. Again, the ticker is AIR, and the company is AAR. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.